You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. It's 1974. Colombian historian and sociologist Orlando Falborda is ecstatic. He's just discovered a forgotten portrait of Colombia's former president, Juan José Nieto Gil, in the damp basement of the Inquisition Palace at Cartagena. This was quite the find. There was no color portraiture of Nieto Gil, only one black and white photograph. But something was wrong. Nieto Hill's painted face was a strange tint of whitish blue. Surely this was some kind of alteration, Fallsboard amused, because he knew something that many Colombians did not know, that Nieto Hill was black. Indeed, nearly 150 years before the election of Barack Obama to the presidency of the USA, Juan José Nieto Gil served as the 14th president of the United States of New Granada, as Colombia was called back then. Nieto Gil was the first black president of the Americas. But in 1974, few Colombians knew anything about him. This was not a simple oversight, Falls Borda was sure of that. The figure of Nieto Hill, America's first black president, had been deliberately obscured from Colombian history. Justiniano Duran had carefully painted Nieto Hill's official presidential portrait from life sometime around 1861. After Nieto Hill's death in 1866, his portrait was sent to Paris for an alteration intended to make it look more quote-unquote distinguished. And this is where his face acquired the strange whitish-blue tint observed by Falls Borda over a hundred years later. Once the portrait was returned to Colombia, there was very little interest in it. Eventually, it ended up being abandoned in the Inquisition Palace. Just as his dark-faced portrait was lightened, the reality of Nieto Hill's African ancestry was obscured and lost to history. Falsborda was intent on rectifying this wrong. He had the portrait restored, that is, redarkened, that very year. 
It wasn't until 2018, however, that the restored portrait and Nieto Hill's black ancestry was recognized and celebrated by the Colombian state. In August of that year, former President Juan Manuel Santos presided over the installation of a replica of Nieto Hill's original portrait to the presidential palace in Bogota. Perhaps the 19th century Colombian authorities' efforts to erase the African roots of his 14th president is unsurprising to those who know Latin American history. But the story of race and nationalism in Latin America is much more complicated than meets the eye. Join us as we dig in. I'm Marissa. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous auger and excavator-level patrons. Hannah, Lauren, Colin, Edward, Iris, Susan, Denise, Agnes, Jesse, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com backslash digpodcast to learn more. There are few ideologies more important to the history of Latin America than nationalism. To early moderns, this statement would have been surprising. While European countries were centralizing and consolidating along national lines, Latin America remained a decentralized, politically heterogeneous, colonial holding ruled by Spain and Portugal. Few could have imagined that the various viceroyalties that made up the Iberian empires would one day declare independence and coalesce around their own national identities. To be fair, it took quite some time, an entire century before the independent states of Latin America developed a durable, stable national identity that held their societies together. One of the biggest impediments to nationalist sentiment in Latin America was its complex racial hierarchies, called castas. For most of the colonial period, Latin American societies were pigmentocracies, a system that links skin color with honor, virtue, and calidad, which translates roughly to status. The Latin American castas were, in one sense, a bastardization of the Iberian concept of blood purity. Seven months before Cristoforo Colombo made landfall on the island of Hispaniola, Spanish monarchs Fernando and Isabel, known in English as Ferdinand and Isabella, completed their Catholic Reconquista, or Reconquest, of the Iberian Peninsula from the Muslim Moors. While Muslim rule was over in Spain, the 700-year Reconquista had inexorably shaped Iberian society the Spanish and Portuguese became suspicious of so-called 
quote unquote, new Christians, whose families had not always been Christians. And this suspicion gradually formed into a sort of hereditary caste system. Old Christians, or families who could prove that they had no Jews or Muslims in their ancestry, were considered to be of quote unquote, true or pure blood. All others, conversos, recent Jewish converts to Catholicism, uh, Moriscos, recent Muslim converts to Catholicism, and all of their descendants had, you know, quote unquote, polluted bloodlines. Families with impure blood were discriminated against by civil and ecclesiastical statutes. This culture of blood purity hitched a ride on the backs of the conquistadores as they conquered and colonized the New World in the 15th and 16th centuries. While the New World was an ethnically diverse place from the start, the arrival of enslaved Africans after 1502 amplified this diversity considerably. In this environment, the concept of blood purity was plucked from its religious context and applied to racial and ethnic mixture. But this took some time. In other words, castas developed organically over centuries of colonial rule, and they didn't reach their peak of complexity until the second half of the 18th century. This makes sense, since the 18th century is one of intellectual exploration, collection, and classification in Europe. Philosophers like Denis Diderot, taxonomists like Carl Linnaeus, and zoologists like Georges Cuvier sought to discover, catalog, and organize the synthetic plant and animal worlds. An outgrowth of this impulse was the growing science of human taxonomy. Applying the scientific method to the study of human difference, human taxonomists sought to label and arrange humanity into species and races. Latin American societies were well positioned as objects of study for human taxonomists because of their racial diversity and long history of racial and ethnic mixing called mestizaje. Historian Ruth Hill has traced these scientific efforts and their impacts on Latin American society. According to Hill, if the cultural origin of castas can be found in ideas of Iberian blood purity, their scientific origin can be found in folk notions of animal breeding. For example, early modern animal breeders had developed quote-unquote degeneration equations after generations of experimentation. They figured out how many reproductive cycles it would take to turn a purebred animal into a base breed, with no trace of its purebred ancestry visible. In colonial contexts, animal breeders also observed the impact of climate on the appearance of their brutes. The same was done with plants. Spanish monk Benito Fierro y Montenegro, for example, wrote, The seed of wheat planted in less fertile soil produces a grain very inferior in shape, color, flavor, etc., that they call rye. The seed of cabbage grown in good soil, planted in another that is less suitable, produces in the first generation cabbage not as good as that from which the seed was taken. In the second, it already produces wild cabbage. And in the third and fourth, this same plant starts deteriorating so much that these wild cabbages, grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the cabbage, appear to be vegetables of a completely different type from their grandparent and great-grandparent. Why couldn't the same thing happen in proportion to men? End quote. 
Now, degeneration has a negative connotation, um, you know, to us. But in this context, degeneration could be both good and bad. In the case of a purebred horse, for example, its continual crossings with mixed breeds would erase its purebred blood entirely after a few generations. If purebreds are your goal, which it often is in the case of horses, um, degeneration is bad. Um, A bit of an alert, this next bit is offensive as hell, and I just want to, you know, reiterate that these are not our ideas, but rather the ideas of early modern contemporaries. Um, But... Uh, In the colonial Latin American context, degeneration was often welcome, depending on where the original quote-unquote purebred humans race fell on the racial hierarchy. For example, an African-born person analogous to the purebred horse for the 18th century scientist, right? I'm not saying they're analogous to purebred horses. The 18th century scientist is saying that they are. Um... An an African-born person might be able to erase their black blood over time by mixing with white, blancos, or biracial people at the time called mulattoes. So after three or four generations, there may be no trace of blackness left in the African's descendants because their black blood had been degenerated to the point of no return. This was called blanqueamiento, or whitening, when it was applied to humans. During Latin America's colonial history, whitening was regarded as the quote-unquote goal. Hill's work suggests that Latin Americans, or at least those who maintained power and left copious records, were preoccupied with degenerating or whitening black and brown blood. A vibrant print culture emerged wherein naturalists argued how many crossings were required to clear black or brown blood. Missionary and naturalist Jose Gumilla argued that four crossings were needed to breed a white person from a black or brown person. Jean-Baptiste Labat argued that whites could be bred from Indios or Indians in merely three quote-unquote crossings. During the 18th century, typologists began to doubt that black blood, as opposed to Indian blood, was capable of whitening. These anxieties are depicted in famous Mexican Costa's paintings. In these paintings, the fourth crossing, which earlier experts believed would achieve whitening, at least in the case of the Indio, uh, did no such thing for descendants of blacks. Instead, an octoroon, or one-eighth black, male and Spanish white, female birth de torna atras, or throwback. As Ruth Hill puts it, Quote, a fugitive blackness resurfaces, indicating the depth of negrophobia in late 18th century Mexico. Hill also explains, quote, this black tornaatra couples with a Spaniard and produces the tonte en el air, uh, literally means stay up in the air in French, um, also known as grifo, literally griffin, which is a canine breed. Um, who has one thirty-second of black ancestry and yet marks a very visible regression to blackness. All descendants of the black Tontanelaire remain in that category no matter how many times they have children with Spaniards. End quote. She continues writing that this, quote, revealed the inexpungible essence of blackness. It cannot be cleared from the human blood. Whites cannot be bred from blacks. End quote. 
What's more is that, quote, blackness grafted onto Amerindian ancestry also renders the latter impenetrable to whiteness, end quote. So what she's saying is um, eventually people started to think, wait, um, actually, we can't breed whites out of blacks. And not only that, but if blacks uh, um, reproduce with indigenous Americans, that makes those indigenous Americans also unable to whiten. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you mentioned this later, but we'll definitely have some pictures. They had tons of like paintings that kind of showed this visually, right? And so we'll make sure that we have some of those on the blog. In some senses, whitening was an ideology, but it was also a colonial policy and a strategy for social mobility. In the colonial period, whitening policy typically took the form of manipulating census data. For example, in the 1793 census of the vice royalty of New Spain, which includes present-day Mexico, southwest the United States, Central America, and the Caribbean, uh, it purposely omitted the category negro, or black, from the census. In Mexico City, the only category associated with blackness was mulatto. According to official census information, then, blacks had disappeared from Mexico City. Right. I was actually just showing my students today this like this. um, It was like a thing that was showing the race of different Muslims in the U.S. And like 40 percent of them were white. And they were like, wait, what? 40 percent of Muslims are white. And but when you look at the other options, the only other options was Hispanic and black and Asian. And, you know, someone who comes from like Turkey or Syria or whatever wouldn't identify as Asian or black or Hispanic. So white's like the only option. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so it's a way to kind of manipulate data um, if you kind of shift your categories like that. Yeah, super interesting. Uh, members of less desirable costas could often use this census manipulation to their own advantage, claiming membership in the mejor costas or the upper costas. One royal official in charge of the Tetchcoco census described his census-taking process thusly, quote, I have indicated groups, costas, Espanol, Castizo, Mestizo, Pardo, etc., using the declarations of residents themselves as my guiding principle, although some have given me cause to suspect that they did not tell the truth. In the census from Tepechlochtok, your honorable viceroy will see a town full of Spaniards. But whether they are or aren't, they are certainly well-to-do, they live honorably, and if some abrogate for themselves a higher rank, a mejor casta, they have valid legal titles to support it, end quote. So, so this quote is, you know, this is the census taker writing to the vice regent or something, right, saying, like, all these people say they're white or Spaniard, um, which was kind of the uh, uh, synonymous with white. Um, he's like, I'm pretty sure they're not, but <laughs> they're close enough, kind of. Census takers agreed to uphold colonial subjects' racial fictions to preserve their calidad or status. The same official also wrote, quote, This would be an odious process, and were it conducted rigorously, very dark stains erased over time would be revealed in the most distinguished of families, with this precision resulting in scandalous filings that, once bound over to the courts, would never end. I view the charge of conducting censuses for the establishment of militias as one of giving honor rather than taking it away, end quote. Historian Mara Viveros Vigoya explains, quote, whiteness was also a matter of reputation, since a person could be white if they were considered to be so publicly. 
So even though this was an incredibly hierarchical society that privileged whiteness, it was also a place where race was fluid and changeable. It's really interesting. Yeah, and it's and I think that the the fluidity and changeability there is one of the reasons why we tend to think of Latin America as um a sort of like post-racial place or like a place where race is not as problematic as it is in the United States, perhaps. Um, at least that's that is kind of like what I was taught. Um, and it's not that's not exactly true. Right. It's not the case at all, really. Yeah. Right. <laughs> not at all. So um, this value system remained even after the 1820s when Latin American countries declared independence from Spain and expelled the Spanish peninsulares from the Americas. One might think that this would revolutionize the racial landscape, and in some ways it did, at least the way that racial categories were legislated. The categories of indio and esclavo, which is slave, um, so Indian and slave, had been the defining categories prior to independence, tying black and brown bodies to the lower castes, and they actually had like special protected legal statuses. And indeed, there was a brief period of racially inclusive politics during the Revolutionary Wars, but this did not last long. While Latin America successfully emancipated themselves from direct European rule, the white criollos, or creoles, um, who retained power continued to value European culture and science, which elevated whiteness above all else. The middle third of the 19th century was a tough time for the fledgling nations in Latin America. European-style Republican government did not translate easily to the Latin American context. Revolutionary criollos lost faith in their liberal visions. And by liberal, we mean classical liberalism, free market, civil liberties, secularism, and individualism. And this was partly due to their recognition of Latin American demographics. They believed in the abolition of slavery, expansion of the franchise, and a federal political structure. But they doubted that Indios and Negros were capable of the kind of political participation they'd witnessed in the United States and France. One exception to this was Haiti, which had established the first black republic in 1804. But Haiti's revolution was bloody, tumultuous, and their republican project somewhat doomed by a failing economy. White, criollo, Latin American revolutionaries were not keen to use them as an example. As historian Peter Wade describes it, criollos saw their black and indigenous populations as inferior and their large mestizo populations as a burden, end quote. These doubts were especially compelling to the criollos governing areas with large indigenous populations like Mexico and Peru, and those which with large Afro-Latino populations like Brazil and the Caribbean. For most of Latin America, the answer to these anxieties and the only way to bolster the legitimacy of the many new nation states was to turn to regional caudillos, um, which translates to strong men. So the middle third of the 19th century saw caudillo after caudillo seize power using military coups. During this turmoil, national projects were often put on hold, but blanqueamiento persisted. It was during this time that national discourse coalesced around mestizaje. Mestizaje, meaning miscegenation or racial mixing, was something that had been happening since the 15th century. 
But colonial authorities and then Criollo revolutionaries um, had always considered Latin America's racial mixing to be a liability rather than an asset. This began to change during the 19th century. It would be a mistake, however, um, to view these 19th century Latin American nations as some sort of post-racial utopia. Uh, By the late 18th century, mixed populations became the dominant demographic, so authorities um, bent on strong nation states could not afford to ignore them. For some countries, those with large indigenous and Afro-Latino populations, the fight for whitening was over before it began. They resigned themselves to pursuing a policy of mestizaje, or racial mixing, instead. In these years, mestizaje was often a pragmatic solution pursued by authorities who recognized the importance of nationalist feeling to the cohesion of the nation-state. Artists also contributed to a sense of national feeling, publishing art and literature called costumbrismo that celebrated national folkways. For example, here is an excerpt from an 1855 publication called A Mexican Self-Portrait. Mariquita lives in a rented room, and she keeps the door open because cleanliness is her strong suit, and that applies to her person, her clothing, and not just the outer layer, and her living quarters. Her room is small, but its floor is spotless. There is a bed in one corner, with modest linens, scrupulously clean. Beside her petticoats, her shawl, her sewing basket, and a few romantic novels. Her necklaces may or may not be there, depending on the day of the week, because they are regularly in the pawn shop, except for Sundays, when she finds money to rescue them temporarily before pawning them again on Monday or Tuesday. <laughs> right, so it's sort of like, um, I, I don't know if you get from that, like the, the costume reasonable part of it, but it's like, hey, you know, we have these kind of um, urban, uh, sort of poor but respectable um, you know, citizens who are kind of they're they're living sort of just above want, right? Like just at the point, and mm-hmm. um, you know they kind of have their own personalities and they have uh, their their own sort of respectable practices, like keeping yourself very clean or whatever. But there's also like kind of interesting little quirky things about them, like the pawning thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she gets them out of the pawn shop for Sundays, probably for church, right? right. Um, there's all these sort of like hidden um, messages about what it means to be uh, a Mexican woman in the 1850s. Right. And respectability and cleanliness being very closely tied in that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, So Costumbrismo uh, was believed to capture the national essence to transcend race and class and regional difference. By mid-century, regionalism gave way to nationalism, as caudillos such as Argentina's Juan Manuel de Rosas and Mexico's Porfirio Diaz and their Republican analogs consolidated power on a grander scale. These nationalist governments were republics in name, but they functioned as dictatorships or oligarchies. This sort of disingenuous veneer was often reproduced in the person of the president or prime minister. One example is Mexico's Benito Juarez, who was full-blood Zapotec. 
uh, one would be forgiven for assuming that this was a triumph for Indio representation, but Juarez was no crusader for indigenous rights. He wore rice powder on his face to lighten his complexion and did little or nothing to improve the lot of indigenous Mexicans. Juarez pursued a classical liberal agenda, attacking military and church courts, and abolishing collective landholding in favor of individual property rights. Moreover, he was chummy with the United States. Napoleon III had been invited by Mexican conservatives to invade Mexico in the 1860s. Uh, Napoleon III installed Maximilian, Archduke of Austria, as Emperor of Mexico. Once the American Civil War ended in 1865, the United States finally had the bandwidth to help their ally, Juarez. Juarez was a contemporary of José Nieto Gil, the black president of Colombia that we mentioned at the top of the show. Much like Juarez and his indigeneity, Nieto uh, achieved the presidency in spite of his blackness, not because of it. And this explains why his portrait was whitened in Paris after his death. National discourse had reverted to mestizaje out of necessity, but it didn't mean that racism was any less virulent. During this period, mestizaje were treated as a vehicle to blanqueamiento, rather than as an ideology to replace it. Wade describes uh, this so well. He says, quote, Elites could not escape the mixedness of their population. Although this varied markedly from one country to another, being more prominent in Mexico than Argentina or Chile, mixture could, however, be defined as a process of whitening. The perceived superiority of whites would tip the nation's biological and cultural balance in their favor, helped by European immigration, end quote. And so it's worth pointing out that most national programs of mestizaje excluded black Latinos, focusing instead on mixing Indio and Blanco blood, especially during the 19th century. After the conservative triumph of the Caudillos in the middle third of the 19th century, liberalism rebounded and grew more attractive to most Latin Americans. Latinos witnessed the monumental economic, industrial, and political successes of liberal Europe, and after 1870, the United States, and they wanted a piece of that pie. But liberal reforms would be necessary to open up Latin American economies to the free market and to beef up their infrastructure. Having experienced disappointment during their first attempt at importing liberalism to Latin America, most Latinos believed that in order to modernize successfully, they needed to whiten their population, assimilate the Indios, and invite European influence over a Latin American economies and states. Right, so they're like, we're not going to make this mistake again because after independence, everything sort of fell apart. So they think, well, we need to be to be more European if we're going to be successful like the Europeans. So as Wade suggests, an optimistic approach to genetic blanqueamiento was paired with attempts to make their demographics more European. This was itself a form of whitening with origins in racial and environmental determinism. 
They believed that their supposed racial inferiority would determine their success as a nation. This is also rooted in environmental determinism as well. Um, Modern science suggested that cultures living in tropical climates were, and would always be, primitive, lacking the hallmarks of modern civilization. So Latin Americans have this sort of chip on their shoulder, right? They view themselves as imitators of European and North American culture. So many Latin American countries actively recruited European immigrants to transform their demographics. From 1870 to 1930, Latin America welcomed 4.2 million immigrants from Italy, 3 million from Spain, and 1.2 million from Portugal. South American countries like Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, and Brazil were most successful in their European immigration campaigns. More than 5 million of these 10 million or so immigrants had come to Argentina. By 1914, 30% of the Argentinian population was foreign-born, and there was a vibrant hybrid culture in Buenos Aires with the new dance called the tango and the pidgin language called lunfardo. Montevideo in Uruguay was much smaller than Buenos Aires, but culturally similar. And Anthony Bourdain's family is uh, from Uruguay. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Like his his family. Yeah, they were like Europeans that that immigrated during this time. He had a show or something where he was like tracing it. Oh, so just a little okay. aside. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So Uruguay, um, Argentina is like better known for being the kind of I don't know, whitest and most Europeanized of Latin America. But Uruguay is actually just about the same. It just so happens to be much smaller than Argentina, so it doesn't get Mm -hmm. the same reputation, I guess. Um, So while this new immigration movement happened in the United States as well, new immigrants to South America did not live in ethnic enclaves once they arrived, as they did in American cities in the United States. Um, Immigrants often mixed together, living in conventillos, which were old colonial mansions that had been converted into tiny one-room apartments. Historian James Scobie describes the census information for a Potosi Street conventillo thusly, quote, The 207 inhabitants of this conventillo filled 30 rooms and took up the same floor space which one well-to-do family of 10 to 15 members and 5 to 10 servants would have occupied. Some nuclear families lived in individual rooms, a Spanish washerwoman in her 60s with four children, the oldest of whom was widowed and lived there with his six-year-old Argentine-born son, an Italian shoemaker with his wife and three children, all born in Italy, a French mason and his French wife, a washerwoman, and their four children, all born in Buenos Aires, a widowed Spanish washerwoman and her five children, the oldest born in Uruguay and the youngest two in Buenos Aires. More common was the group of men, some single and others married to wives they had left in Europe, who had banded together to form a single room, end quote. With Latin America's demographic whitening well underway, all that was left was economic and industrial modernization. Most Latin American countries did not have experience or extensive capital to invest in infrastructure to support an industrial revolution like that in Britain or the United States. And so they invited British, French, and American investors to build up Latino economies. From 1870 to 1913, British investment in Latin America went from 85 million pounds sterling to 757 pounds sterling, an increase of nearly 900%. 
Comparing Latin America to Europe and North America, where liberalism also triumphed, Latin America remained comparatively agricultural, comparatively less urban, political agency remained contained to an elite few, suffrage mostly very limited. Latin American cities, though growing fast, were not as industrialized as European and North American cities. Industries took place in the countryside in foreign quote-unquote company towns, since the economy revolved around export of raw materials rather than the manufacture of finished goods, with few exceptions. Thus, blanqueamiento became part of achieving European-style modern states and industrialized economies, and foreigners became deeply involved in Latin American economies and politics. Here, Latin American governments entered what is often called their neo-colonial period, so this sort of new colonial period. This period in almost all Latin American countries is characterized by whitening efforts and low racial esteem among Latinos. With their investments of capital, Europeans and Americans essentially bought political influence in Latin America. Most countries were run by either oligarchies deeply loyal to foreign business interests or dictatorial strongmen, similar to the Caudillo-style rule, but kind of on a, a national rather than a regional level. Um, and elections were generally managed, a.k.a. rigged, and foreign investors were incredibly powerful, elevating or destroying domestic politicians at will. Dictatorial strongmen like Mexico's Porfirio Diaz, for example, were often from marginalized groups. Diaz was himself mestizo, but they never represented indigenous or Afro-Latino interests. The neo-colonial period had several impacts on Latin American society that are worth mentioning here. First, the modernization of upper-class elites. Historically, upper-class elites were content to sit back and rake in passive profit from their land holdings. These elites were never interested in political power. They had always left that to the Spanish or Portuguese, and later to the rebel Creoles, then to military caudillos. Now, elites sought both commercial success and avenues of political power. They lived very elegant European lifestyles, with mansions, pianos, fancy furniture, china, fine art, automobiles, etc., etc., and they were highly educated, especially in the fields of law, medicine, and engineering. And it was in response to this period of neocolonialism that a new racial ideology called indigenismo emerged. During the early 20th century, indigenous majorities in countries like Mexico and Peru rose up and rejected foreign investors and blanqueamiento policies pursued by their apologists. The indigenismo movement generally advocated for greater authority for Indians in countries where they constituted a majority of the population. But, as things are, it's complicated, and there are some really nasty sides of indigenismo ideology as well. Indigenismo and mestizaje came to operate in tandem in the 20th century. In Mexico, Central America, Peru, and the Caribbean, immigration campaigns were less successful. Blanqueamento appeared to be outside of their grasps, and they didn't even want that anyway. They began to perceive whitening as one of the many racist remnants of their colonial pasts. So those countries, Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Venezuela, etc., leaned in to mestizaje. Now, with an emphasis on indigenismo, or browning, uh, 
of Latin America rather than the whitening that had sort of accompanied that early idea of mestizaje. Indigenismo and mestizaje became new rallying points for national cohesion, ones that in countries like Mexico and Peru was more inclusive of their population. This concept was especially potent in Mexico, which experienced the Mexican Revolution in 1910. In response to the European and American economic interference, exploitation, and racism, Mexicans revolted against Mexico's pro-U.S. dictator Porfirio Diaz. Diaz's rule, called the Porfiriato, ran from 1876 to 1911, and it served as the height of foreign investment in racist policy in Mexico. A rising, educated, urban middle class coalesced around Francisco Madero's challenge to Diaz in 1910. Mexican peasants, led by charismatic revolutionaries, joined the political tumult in its second phase, after Madero ousted Diaz but failed to institute land reform. Mexico is the only country whose nationalist movements extended to the peasantry in the early 20th century. Peasants in the north coalesced around Pancho Villa, and peasants in the south coalesced around Emiliano Zapata. Mexico was thrown into a state of civil war. While the moderate middle-class constitutionalists eventually emerged triumphant in 1920, the near-universal involvement of the Mexican citizenry had transformed Mexico's ideology of race. In a way, the Mexican Revolution signaled the triumph of indigenismo and mestizaje over blancamiento. Artists like Frida Kahlo and her husband Diego Rivera embraced the philosophy of indigenismo, which they incorporated into their revolutionary politics. To Frida Kahlo, whose father was German and mother an Indio, mestizaje represented the two parts of herself. In her painting, The Two Fridas, Kahlo depicts two versions of herself, one dressed in the white, delicate lace of a respectable Spanish lady, and the other dressed in the coarse peasant clothing of an Indian or mestizo peasant. The two Fridas are connected by a blood vessel, perhaps representing the blood Frida shares with both Europeans and the Indios. But the European Frida suffers from a diseased heart, while the indigenous Frida's heart is strong and healthy. The European Frida clamps a blood vessel emerging from her diseased heart, lest it empty her European body, and eventually her Indio body, of the rest of their blood. But this state of affairs can't last forever. European Frida's artery clamp forestalls inevitable bleeding out of both the European and Indio Frida. In more recent decades, Kahlo's insistence on wearing Mexican peasant clothing and hairstyles and her self-professed revolutionary politics have been called into question by resentful indigenous Mexicans who ask, what has Frida Kahlo done for actual indigenous Mexicans? Um, And it's true, the answer is not much. And in hindsight, her pretenses reek of privilege. She was an upper-middle-class intellectual elite who identified with the figure of a Tijuana, a strong but poor Zapotec woman. Her Tijuana personality was, according to her, manufactured. I've never been to Tehuantepec, nor do I have any connection to the town. But of all Mexican dresses, it's the one I like the most, and that's why I wear it. Why her ideologies about mestizaje and populist rule were arguably sincere after her untimely death, her aesthetic has grown into a marketable commodity, a brand that Kahlo would not have herself recognized. 
And this is, um, you know, she she's only one of many sort of examples of of this um, sort of uh, marketability of mestizaje. So um, some scholars even describe renewed 20th century approaches to mestizaje as mestizophilia, an obsession with racial mixing. Mestizophilia is best encapsulated by Jose Vasconcelos' best-selling book La Raza Cosmica, in English, The Cosmic Race, published in 1925. Vasconcelos argued um, that racial mixing would eventually result in what he called a fifth race. This race would be a mixture of all the races that had inhabited the earth up to that point, and it would benefit from all the knowledge imparted onto it from its multiracial forebears. For 1925, a time when racism was rampant, whiteness was king, and eugenics was all the rage, Vasconcelos' ideas were radical, but still they fell short for many Latinos. The more that mestizaje developed, the less inclusive it tended to be, excluding Afro-Latinos and other ethnic minorities like Jews and Chinese who had arrived as part of the new immigration movement. While indigenismo is usually perceived as a celebration of indigenous heritage and culture, in practice it was often quite destructive to actual indigenous people. Indigenista sociologists and anthropologists prioritized indigenous communities and demographics in their studies. Political activists, too, began to privilege indigenous communities in their outreach efforts. But in doing so, they often attempted to change or modernize indigenous culture and society, quote, for their own good, end quote. This drive to include Indians in the national conversation was a deliberate move. Mexican anthropologist Manuel Jamio called for a new nationalism in 1916 that would, quote, combine Mexico's disparate population in a solid patriotic union. Historian Stephen E. Lewis calls Jamio's anthropology's first mestizophilic indigenista. Jamio mapped out the indigenous communities living in rural Mexico, fixing them to a spectrum from primitive on one end to civilized on the other. His goal was to assimilate indigenous communities into the national framework. The result is what Lewis called the contradictory attitudes of mestizo majority nation that reveres the historic contributions of past indigenous civilizations and recognizes a historical debt to contemporary indigenous people, but also embraces a particular kind of mestizaje and decidedly Europeanized notion of modernity and progress. Right, which sums up this contradiction, right? And indigenismo is supposed to like honor um, indigenous Americans and make them part, you know, this kind of national focal point. Um, but indigenistas in practice tend to apply Europeanized notions of modernity and progress on the indigenous and actually very harmful and destructive to their societies. So some of you know, indigenistas like Kahlo and Hamio um, may have had noble intentions, but their approaches were flawed and, and perhaps even harmful to historic indigenous people. What's more is that their ideologies, mestizaje, indigenismo, browning, etc., were themselves racist and exclusionary to an increasing number of Latino nationals. Historian Robert Cottrell illustrates this phenomenon perfectly with the following anecdote. So we're fast forwarding to um, the sort of um, 
contemporary period in the 2000s to sort of think about how indigenismo failed, how mestizaje and indigenismo failed Latin America. Um, so, quote, Senora Maria Magdalena La Madrid Pocha, to her friends, is a 5th century Argentine. In August 22, 2002, at 10 in the morning, she went to Aziza Airport, Buenos Aires' principal airport, um, for international travel. She was planning to attend a conference in Panama honoring Martin Luther King Jr. When she presented her documents to airport officials, she was told that her passport must be a forgery. One official told Pocha, who was then 57 years old, that because she was black, she could not be Argentine. She was detained for six hours, three of them in a holding cell. Airport officials asked her if she spoke Spanish. When they found she did, they asked if she was Peruvian. Finally, after having taken her fingerprints and having her citizenship verified by the police, airport officials were satisfied that Pocha, whose family had been in Argentina longer than probably 70% of the nation's population, was indeed an Argentine. They apologized. Their apologies did not make up for the indignity she suffered of her, on her trip, which was ruined. She had missed her flight and was unable to get another in time for the conference. Later, airport officials would claim it was not Pocha's race that made them suspicious, but recent changes to the Argentine passport that caused their concern. But Pocha's memory is clear. The officials would not believe a black woman could be an Argentine. She must be a foreigner, perhaps from Peru or some other nation, but certainly not Argentina, end quote. So Pocha's story suggests that simil similarly to the United States, Latin American countries have stories that they tell themselves about who they are. In Argentina, where Blanque Amiento was largely successful through extensive European immigration, this story excludes the very real and significant contingent of Afro-Argentines. It's much the same in Uruguay and Venezuela, areas like Brazil or Cuba, where majorities of the population are of African descent, their traditional formulation of mestizaje, mixing of white and indigenous blood, never worked. So they made it their own, more inclusive mestizaje that made room for Afro-Latinos within the national framework. But areas where indigenismo reigned supreme because they had large indigenous populations, like Mexico and Peru, Afro-Latino or Asian-Latino inclusion in the national consciousness remains a failure. This makes me think a lot of, of Cardi B, right? Mm -hmm. Because she is like on, you know, Twitter fights all the time with people that are saying, you're not Latina or you're not black, mm -hmm. you know, and it will be like, you know, a, 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 person of, a person of Latin heritage coming at her saying, you know, you're not a true Latina, you're, you're black, you know, that kind of right. thing. And she has to kind of clap back, like learn your history, mm -hmm. you know, and so it's really interesting to kind of see this conversation really playing out. Um, you know, still today in conversations about race and, and who is and who is not and this, that and the other, you know? Right. And it's sort of like I came across an article that was actually about um, Wakanda forever. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, I have it. It's really good. I know it's so good. I've seen it twice. <laughs> I've seen it twice. Nice. Um, it's so good. Um, but uh, part of that and, you know, maybe this is a spoiler, but there are um, indigenous American superheroes, anti-heroes um, in the story that have sort of Mayan and Aztec um, influence. And mm -hmm. um, I was reading an article um, 
about the fact that we, you know, okay, now we have this great example of an indigenous American anti-hero, anti-hero or villain, but he's very like relatable. Like you kind of love him. Um, and, and, and it's sort of fascinating the, the sort of background behind this, um, this group of people. And, um, uh, Mestizo in Latin America had said something like, someone asked him like, why hasn't anyone in Latin America made, you know, a blockbuster movie? Um, Cause there's a very active film in Latino film industry. Um, why hasn't someone in Latin America made a, a blockbuster film um, that gives indigenous Americans um, as much dignity as Wakanda forever does? You know, and they're they're saying it's kind of weird that the United States, which is like, you know, super um, racist and has lots of race problems, they're the ones who kind of create this film that that um, that is so touching and restores dignity to um, indigenous Americans. And the guy was like, I'm actually not surprised at all that it took black Americans to you know, restore dignity to in uh, indigenous um, characters in in films in a, in a major film, uh, and and that Latinos have not yet done that because he's because they're like that exactly makes sense based on my experience in Latin America, and so I just think that that's interesting that um, there's more of a connection regarding race problems and things than we generally think about. Um, because it's more complicated in Latin America, we tend to think that that means that race is not a thing. Like you said, like Cardi B can be, you know, she can be black and she can be Latino, right. um, you know, but it's, but that's right. not true. Uh, but I think it also, you know, we have, we talk about the Latino vote, right? And like my, my last, my last um, podcast that we did about Nino, uh, Nino Otero Warren, um, you know, kind of gets at this, right? Like Latinos are not this all encompassing mm-hmm. people, you know? And so there is no one Latino yeah. representation, you know? Uh, Namor. No more. Yeah. Uh, Namor or Namor, how they say it in the, in the movie, but like, you know, kind of class- <clears throat> classically in Mar- Marvel, he's been Namor, right? Like, uh, you know, he doesn't represent, you know, all indigenous mm-hmm. uh, Latinos or whatever, you know? So he, but I, that is kind of getting back to Wakanda. That is something that they do really well, right? Is kind of like showing like the different, yeah. the different peoples that are, that are part of Wakanda. Yeah. The diversity like ethnically, but also diversity as like by humanizing them. I, I think that's right. what it was that they humanized the uh, Namor and, and his, ancestors you know humanize them in a way that a lot of film does not because a lot of film just characterizes them you know right right. and you don't have to tell me anything about the latino vote now that i'm down here in florida i um have you know like been more interested in sort of local florida politics and um i can say that there is no just latino vote i mean in in miami dade the cubano vote like you know, would have reelected Trump, um, you know, in the last election if they could have. You know what I mean? Right. It's it's yeah, it's not a know. homogenous yeah. uh, unit, so to speak. Yeah. 
Not at all. In Amer- in America so, or in the world, right? Which is which is basically basically what the whole point of your podcast was, right? Yes, the whole point <laughs> is that it's really complicated. <laughs> um, and in on the scale of you know zero to racial justice, we're um, not there yet. You know, no, this was good. I liked it. Uh, I learned a lot. All right. Um, so uh, visit us at digpodcast.org. And um, if you're not yet a patron, patron, uh, patron, you can go to patreon.com backslash dig history. And um, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. And were it conducted rigor- 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 rigorously. Indigenista soci- uh, sociologists and anthropologists prioritized. Oh, my God. Can't talk. Lace of a respectable of a respectable span. For example, in the 1793 census of the Viceroyalty, the neoclassical period had several impacts on Latin American. Neocolonial. Oh, oh, I said neoclassical. Sorry. It's 18, or no, what, nope, nope, nope. Starting off wrong already. (laughs) Great. Much like Juarez and his ingenuity, indigeneity, much like Juarez is, and <laughs> much like, bleh. Oh, okay. I view that. It's, it's not a big deal, but. Shut up. And the only way to bolster the legitimacy and, oh my God, I'm just like, I'm just saying sounds legitimacy. Um, <laughs> uh, Blanque Amiato. We're treated as a vehicle to Blanque Amiato. Amiento. First Mes- mestizo so mestizophilic engine <laughs> indigenista mestizophilic indi- indigenista there you go that's done wait tentanelayer <laughs> that looks that looks french i know Here. doesn't it Ta- um ten ten in french it would be Tant on al air. I'll just say it like it's French. We'll just say it. I would. It does, it does look French. It's not Spanish. Um. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.